Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. Choosewood.com. From St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. I went into the 1959 Webster's International Dictionary to find synonyms for abortion, and there were four of them. Mistake, misconception, monstrosity, and failure. And I thought, well, the only one that works as a euphemism is misconception. I have had two abortions, and those were traumatic events for me. How difficult it is for anybody to think about these things on a personal level, which is really the only level where a pregnancy can be thought about in, in any way. I'm Elaine Cha. In the novel The Misconceiver, the year is 2026, and the United States has almost wholly prohibited abortion rights. Networks of people known as misconceivers resist and help women get abortions even at risk of arrest. When the novel was published in 1997, its genre was science fiction, but its St. Louis-born author, Lucy Ferris, had taken inspiration from legal battles for abortion rights during the Clinton era, and she created a work of richly detailed alternative history, even when it doesn't feel quite so alternative in a world where its grim predictions in many ways came true. Until recently, few got the chance to read it. The novel sold well, but quickly went out of print. Then in the wake of the overturning of Roe, it has come back into print and gained attention for its predictions. Lucy Ferris has just flown back to St. Louis. She'll be at Left Bank Books tonight for an event to talk about the book's rediscovery. She joins us now in our studio. Lucy, welcome. So happy to be here. Now, The Misconceiver was not your first novel. In fact, it was your fourth, and you began writing it in 1995. Now, you've said that this book represented a kind of, quote, worst-case scenario. Why was that on your mind at the time, Lucy, and how did that become this book? I think at the time, the Supreme Court had already taken up the what became the, the Casey um, case, and so there were postcards going out to those of us who believed in reproductive rights saying they're going to overturn Roe v. Wade. They're going to overturn Roe v. Wade. And I'm the daughter of a lawyer. So the first thing I thought about was, well, what does that mean legally? What what happens in real life when, if and when they do overturn Roe v. Wade? What What's the next thing to happen? And that kind of curiosity has always been and was always even then what got me going on a novel. And where were these postcards coming from? They were coming from Planned Parenthood, um, probably from the National Abortion Rights Action League. I can't quite remember. But all it was like Chicken Little saying, the sky is falling, the sky is falling. Mm-hmm. And did it feel alarmist at the time? Very much so. Okay. And what were some of the conversations maybe that were happening around you um, that got you thinking not only about these legal aspects, but some of the the everyday sorts of impacts that uh, encroachment on abortion rights could have. 
All I could think about was I was 19 when Roe v. Wade was passed, and so I knew a number of women just slightly older than I was who had terminated their pregnancies illegally in the late 60s. And I had heard those stories, and I could not believe that we would go back to that era. Mm -hmm. So I, I really wanted to investigate how on earth would this happen and what would it look like in a world that looked very different already in the 90s mm -hmm. from the 60s. And in the 90s at this time, you are not here in St. Louis. You are in California, right? Right. So how did that inform some of uh, the way that you were conceiving of, no pun intended here, of this world that you constructed for the novel? Well, you had states like California, which has always been a state of extremes, that on the one hand was a very progressive state, was a place where uh, terminating an unwanted uh, pregnancy was seen as the responsible thing to do if you were going to plan a family then or later. And at the same time, of course, it was host to uh, a number of very right-wing groups, uh, a number of newly founded uh, evangelical Christian groups. And so you saw those extremes. And when I started reading about what might happen, how Roe v. Wade might be overturned, I saw that scholars were looking at the involvement possibly of those groups. Mm -hmm. So given that context, and we talked about this in the, the green room before we came in here, I was in California uh, from 1990 through 2000, first as a high school student and then a, a college student, both in the Los Angeles area and San Diego. And I, I understand what you're talking about insofar as the evangelical movement, because I was part of it at that time. And so there were conversations going on about abortion and making sure that it did not uh, get past the point that it was then. Um, you were at the time um, done with college and mm -hmm. working as a young adult. I mean, was there some relationship between fact and fiction, given where you were then, that you really wanted to drive home with your novel? I think the thing I really wanted to drive home was how personal this is, that I, and all of my work really has been about uh, making what we see as external political things personal because they are personal stories. Um, I have had two abortions, and those were traumatic events for me. And I think they are traumatic events for many women. I didn't want to write a screed. I wanted to write a novel to bring home how difficult it is for anybody to think about these things on a personal level, which is really the only level where uh, pregnancy can be thought about in, in any way if mm -hmm. you're a person who can become pregnant. So the political climate, the cultural climate, um, was such that people might think the, the book went out of print for that reason. So it comes out in 1997. It's well-reviewed. It's relevant. It sells out of its first printing, and then it disappears. So, Lucy, what happened? What happened has, oddly enough, nothing to do with the book itself. People always think oh, it was too controversial for the time. I don't know that it was. It was part of a two-book contract. There was a specious libel lawsuit launched at me 
for the first book in that two-book contract. Mm. And Simon & Schuster's policy was not to distribute any of the novels by someone who was being sued for libel. So we simply waited for that lawsuit to go away, by which time the world had moved on and there were a lot of books sitting in a warehouse that were eventually remaindered or pulped. Mm -hmm. So that must have been quite a disappointment. I mean, how did you take that as an author? It was devastating because as an author, you rely on your sales figures. And I knew that this novel was well-reviewed. I knew that this novel was seen as an important book to add to the conversation around, I mean, following up, obviously, on The Handmaid's Tale, following up on, on what was then called the new traditionalism, about where women were headed in the future. And it couldn't be part of that conversation because it wasn't available mm -hmm. during most of the, the first year that it was out. So it was devastating to me professionally, personally. Uh, I, it was very hard for me to publish my next book because mm -hmm. I had to explain why it was that this book um, had such low sales figures, mm -hmm. given its reviews. So it was, very, it was very difficult. But the main thing for me was that I really felt it ought to be part of the conversation, right, and it couldn't right. be. So that was really what you were looking for then when you published the book in 97? Was that the hope that it would, that it would be part of a, uh, a growing or, or deepening discourse? Yes. Yeah, so we had, as I say, The Handmaid's Tale, which was set in a distant future with what felt at the time like really out there scenarios for what might happen to women. And I wanted to write something that was a little closer to home because you could already see the signs of um, things kind of reversing where we had thought we were going in the latter part of the 20th century. So I wanted to, to write something that felt more real mm -hmm. and bring that into, as I say, the conversation about what might happen with women and with those rights in the future. And it was for a very brief time, and then and then it wasn't. Mm -hmm. Now, your novel is finally getting the printing. It should have gotten 25 years ago. How did that come about? A St. Louisan, actually, Ron Charles, who is now the chief books editor at the Washington Post, discovered the book and called me up one day and said, this book is not like any of the other books on abortion I've ever read. This book actually is about people and about choices that they make and so forth. How, how come I didn't know about this book? Because he knows about just about every book out there. Mm -hmm. So we had a conversation. The last copies of the book that I knew of were at a small bookstore in the Berkshires of Western Massachusetts. And that Friday, the owner of the bookstore, I had I'd consigned them to that mm -hmm. bookstore. And he called me and he said, you know why I'm calling? And I said, oh, Ron Charles? And he said, the, the phone is ringing off the hook. Wow. So, And how did that feel? Strange, because on the one hand, uh, I believed in this book, and I knew that people would want to read it. And on the other hand, I did not want it to suddenly become popular because we were now overturning Roe v. Wade, which mm -hmm. was what was happening. So from my point of view, it was a disaster that had brought about a, a, politic, a, a publishing rebirth of my book. And so it felt very strange. Complicated. 
Yeah. We're talking with Lucy Ferris, a St. Louis-born author whose 1997 novel, The Misconceiver, described a fictional future America where abortion is outlawed. The novel is getting renewed attention, as Lucy has just mentioned, and she is here with us to talk about the book's legacy. There will also be an event tonight at Left Bank Books. Now let's talk about the book itself. Your novel follows a young woman named Phoebe Masters, and the focus really is on her, I think, to the point you're making about personal, individual, um, Phoebe's relationships with her sister and mother uh, and their work as misconceivers, which is the word that is used for abortion. Lucy, tell us a bit about the like, historical setting or context of this story. Sure. So first I should explain that the reason it's called a misconceiver is that nobody then or now wants to say the word abortion. And so, <clears throat> excuse me, I, um, I went into the 1959 Webster's International Dictionary to find synonyms for abortion, and there were four of them, mistake, misconception, monstrosity, and mm-hmm. failure. And I thought, well, the only one that works as a euphemism is misconception. So in the world of the book, which uh, has a narrator born at the millennium, so she's 26 in 2026 when she's narrating her story, Uh, Roe v. Wade has been overturned in 2006, and five years later, a human life amendment has passed Congress and made abortion illegal throughout the United States. So we're actually 15 years past that amendment in a world where the common understanding is that abortion is murder. And one of the important things for me was to have a narrator who was credible as someone who had grown up in that environment, but who also had a family legacy, a very personal legacy of people working as abortion providers. Mm-hmm. Now, when you were talking earlier about the the law part of it, and as you were describing <laughs> some of the things that were part of the world that you built, it's it's kind of chilling, you know, how close you have gotten with even the language, how did you arrive at that? Were there people that you consulted with in order to to do that, to get those things unfortunately right? I did, yeah. I I consulted with legal scholars who were writing about this because the the question kept coming up in the 90s. I also consulted uh, with abortion nurses to understand uh, how abortions were performed then and how they had been performed earlier when they were illegal. And the issue of privacy had already been identified as the weak point in Roe v. Wade and the point that uh, people who were against abortion rights would surely go after. And it had also been argued that once you got rid of privacy, other rights would go down. We didn't yet have same-sex marriage, but they saw um, privacy as being key to being able to be in an open same-sex relationship. So Mm -hmm. I built that into the book as well. Well, and that speaks to something that at least stands out to me is that this is not a work of fiction because it's completely made up. There is a great deal of research that went into building this world that felt maybe not so real and we're seeing come to fruition. I'd like to have you read a couple passages from your book, Lucy. In this scene we've selected... 
Phoebe Masters has recently performed a misconception for a young woman from an elite family. Now, Phoebe is thinking about her sister, Marie, who had been a misconceiver herself. And it's years before this point that Marie had been arrested for providing abortions and sent to a, quote, soft jail where she later died. So if you could. Sure. California, Marie told me when I was 16 and studying geography, was the last holdout, the last state to keep first trimester legal. Oh, California, she'd say, as if she was disappointed in a friend. She'd gone there to lobby the year Congress passed the Human Life Amendment, but it was no use. We trusted the states, Marie said too many times. New York, Oregon, New Mexico, California. They all said they'd keep choice. Everyone forgot how choice costs money. No state wanted vagrant pregnancies caught crossing its borders from all points of the compass. No state was begging to go up against the coalition. Corporations moved out, tourists boycotted, and California caved. Marie used to say that money was the one thing they could simply take away. But she was talking about the trajectory of the law, not about personal finance. Funding and states' rights, she said, that was where the coalition got its breaks. Not from moral judgment or religious faith. You could forget the argument about when life begins and turn it into a question of why should society pay for some trashy girl's negligence. You could allow her a choice without being obligated to pay for the consequences. That was the first thing they got past Congress, the taking away of the money. Then they turned to states' rights. Privacy, they pointed out, was nowhere in the Constitution. If a state wanted to invade it, they could. When we come back, we're going to finish uh, this conversation with Lucy Ferris um, and explore a little bit more about this prescient novel that you wrote in 1997. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. Welcome back. We're talking with Lucy Ferris, a St. Louis-born author whose 1997 novel, The Misconceiver, described a fictional future America where abortion is outlawed. The novel is getting renewed attention, and Lucy is here to talk with us about that book's legacy, and she will be at an event tonight at Left Bank Books. Now, before the break, you had read an excerpt from the novel, uh, and the, the world that you created in your book the details that you include about impact of bans, the way people travel across states to seek care, it all feels very close to home. And here in Missouri and the Midwest, people are crossing state lines to Illinois by the hundreds, if not more, to get reproductive medical care. What connections stand out to you, Lucy, between the world you envisioned in fiction 
back in the mid-90s and the realities that we're living with or in right now? I would say the um, we we think this as I said in that as it mentions in that passage that this is about religious faith and states' rights. But when you look more closely, one of the first things to go with the Hyde Amendment, of course, was funding for poor women to to get abortion care, and the money aspect of this has become terrifically. Important. I know that here in Missouri, there's a big argument going on about Medicaid funding for postpartum women because of the restrictions of Medicaid having to do with abortion care. And in other states, you have uh, groups pulling together, trying to get funds for women who do have to cross state lines mm-hmm. to get abortion care. Without that, they would be stranded because many of these women don't have enough money. Mm-hmm. And that's that remains true. And that was something that you got into in in the novel and that Phoebe has some, uh, there's some conflict and tension between her and her cousin in insofar as like, what do you do with the service that is necessary? And then what cost do you attach to that? And I think when it comes to people thinking about dystopia, particularly around women's bodies, around reproductive rights. Um, You mentioned earlier the Canadian author Margaret Atwood's 1985 novel, The Handmaid's Tale. Now, her work explored a future post-revolution America where women are, among other things, forced into childbirth. And you said that you were inspired in part by The Handmaid's Tale, but took a very different approach for your book. Tell us about that, Lucy. Well, The Handmaid's Tale always seemed to me like a very well-written dystopic fantasy. And I wanted to write something that would be a, a realistic novel that was just set slightly in the future. I actually was taken to task by some sci-fi reviewers who said, this isn't sci-fi. And I thought, well, it's not supposed to be mm-hmm. sci-fi. Uh, the other thing that I very much wanted was to have people, both men and women, on both sides of this debate. The Handmaid's Tale is uh, pretty largely about women and men being at odds with each other. Mm -hmm. And I wanted the book to show that there were complicated issues that affected both women and men, because both women and men are affected Mm -hmm. by this. So I tried to construct a novel where the people close to Phoebe regardless of gender, uh, choose their sides because of other factors in their lives. And is that a choice or is that a consideration that you were making when you chose to um, set the action of the book largely in California? I mean, you're from St. Louis. So what guided that decision for where things were taking place? It takes place both in upstate New York and in California. So I wanted the action actually to be in states that we then in the 90s and I think still now consider to be very progressive states, but states that by then, because of pressure from surrounding states and from people with money, um, had finally, as the passage says, caved and outlawed abortion. So I wanted to kind of cover both sides of the country and not set it in a state like Missouri, which already at the time in the 90s 
had taken a pretty sharp rightward turn, so you might have expected that they would be one of the first places to outlaw abortion. Right. And then in A Handmaid's Tale, the American government is violently overthrown and replaced by religious extremists. And then in The Misconceiver, though, changes occur more slowly through a series of lawsuits, acts of Congress, and then public pressure right on states to ban abortion. Um, in choosing this approach, um, did you do so because you could see that playing out or because you didn't want to see it play out? <laughs> I always operate with a sort of what if uh, beginning. So, you know, what if this happens, then what happens next? And I try to follow that, not with something out of left field, but with something that's already kind of baked into the culture and the society that we live in. And um, certainly lobbying influenced by corporations. It's called the coalition in the novel, but there's are corporations that are aligned with uh, evangelical right-wing Christianity. Though that was already in the culture. So I, I felt like, and I still feel as though you can use things to create a dramatic situation that are already all around us. Mm-hmm. Now, you are now living in Connecticut. You grew up in St. Louis, moved away for college, as, as mm-hmm. many people do. And you've written about participating in something that is very St. Louis, and that is the Veiled Prophet Ball. Right? Yes. And that occurred uh, for you in the 1970s, the early 70s. And for most of its history at that point, the Veiled Prophet Society accepted only white male Christians and young women were assigned very specific roles for the ball. Was that experience and that kind of society or culture on your mind in any way when you were creating the world for The Misconceiver? It was. And in fact, some eight years after The Misconceiver, I wrote a memoir called Unveiling the Prophet about that, the overturning of the, of the Veiled Prophet at that time. The reason it was, was that I was in the Veiled Prophet Ball exactly one month prior to the overturning of Roe v. Wade. Mm-hmm. And the tensions around the Veiled Prophet Ball at the time had to do with civil rights, had to do with uh, race relations. But there were gender issues of course, that were happening in in large scale that came out with the passage of Roe v. Wade just a month later. So that juxtaposition was very much on my mind. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the striking similarities between your novel, The Misconceiver, and the real world is a focus on the way people react to the end of abortion. You mentioned people. Here it comes again, right? They create logistics networks. They help Uh, They work to help women travel and to heal also from the procedure. And real-world networks like this exist today, including the Midwest Accessed Coalition, to which you're donating a portion of royalties for this book. Lucy, why is that important to you, especially as someone who's lived for so long outside St. Louis in the Midwest? Well, I grew up in St. Louis, and I still have family in St. Louis, and it's still a very important place to me, not to mention that uh, I, 
People used to talk about domino effect when when they were talking about the Vietnam War. I think more of the domino effect in terms of rights right here in this country. Mm-hmm. And what happens here in St. Louis and Missouri is is the sort of thing that will affect the rest of the country as well. Mm-hmm. Certainly, the Midwest Access Coalition is a is a place that helps women who are in dire need of travel uh, funds, of help with their children. Uh, just all of the things that that go with needing reproductive care. Mm-hmm. With this novel, uh, your characters they really struggle in this book, and at times that includes struggling with abortion. You know, its morality. It's that really stood out because of what you had said earlier about it's not being a screed. Mm-hmm. Do you consider this book a pro-choice or pro-abortion rights book? I consider myself a pro-choice individual. I wrote a novel, and uh, I tried very hard not to impose my point of view on the novel. Uh, one of the abortion nurses that I was working with was reading some early parts about uh, of the novel where people were struggling with moral issues, and she said, I'm not sure I can help you with this. And I said, please understand, I'm setting this at a time when a human life amendment would have been passed 15 years earlier, and I need that to be realistic. Mm -hmm. So I'm not preaching with the book, but I do think choice is difficult. Choice is very difficult. It's a burden we carry, and my characters in the book carry that burden with them all their lives. Mm -hmm. Now, in 2019, you were part of a New York Times project called Op-Eds from the Future was a series in which authors contributed opinion essays we could be reading in the future. And your piece was titled, It's 2040. We need to keep abortion legal in New York. What you described therein was almost a return to the 2026 fictional world of the misconceiver. What did it feel like in 2019 to go back to that very particular vision of the future? Oh, it felt very strange. Because on the one hand, you know, I got a lot of things wrong, mostly things about technology in this book. And I really didn't want to get so much right. And in 2019, it was already pretty clear what the arguments were that were going to be brought before the Supreme Court. And I was all I needed to do was move my story 20 years into the future, and it read pretty much the same way. Lucy Ferris is a St. Louis native and the author of the dystopian prescient 1997 novel, The Misconceiver. Thank you for joining us today, Lucy. Thank you for having me. Lucy will be at Left Bank Books tonight for an author event that begins at 6 p.m. A percent of proceeds will benefit the Midwest Access Coalition. You can find a link to information about the event on our website, stlonair.show. This episode was produced by Danny Wisentowski. Audio engineering and podcast design by Aaron Dorr. Our production intern is Avery Rogers. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. Our podcast proudly supports St. Louis artists by using music from Life Creative Group. 
find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thanks. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association. Missouri produces wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details on the variety of products made in the state are at ChooseWood.com.